by going to Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2. And uh, what, what I want to say first as we talk about the anatomy of a seasoned prayer warrior is that the spiritual discipline of prayer is a perishable skill. Now, what, am, what do I mean about perishable skill? Certain skills that we have require muscle memory or they require mental memory, and we practice these things and we do these things, and the more we do them, the better we get at them. The less we do them, the more those skills begin to perish. And I would say that prayer is a perishable skill. So you, you think about things that are, are perishable. Flying is per, a perishable skill. If I have a private pilot's license and I don't fly for six months, my skill in the cockpit is going to be less than if I've been going every day. Uh, shooting a rifle is a perishable skill. It's all about muscle memory. If I haven't picked up a rifle and shot it in a while, uh, I don't have that same muscle memory. That's why people are always talking about going to the range. Computer programming is a perishable skill. If I'm a great programmer in September of 2018 and I don't do anything for six months, I'm going to lose my edge in the fast-changing world of computer programming. And I would argue that the same thing is true with prayer. The more practiced I am at prayer, the better I get at it. The more I let my, my prayer discipline slide, the more they seem awkward to me and they seem sort of, sort of strange to me. And one of the reasons why is because when Jesus taught about prayer, He said that prayer requires imagination. It requires imagination. Our Father, that requires some imagination, where I'm thinking about the God of the universe as my Father, and I'm not thinking about my earthly Father, but I'm thinking about the ideal Father. That prayer requires imagination. Our Father who is in heaven. That requires some imagination for me to envision God not way out there, but very near. Our Father who is in the heavenly space around me as the omnipresent God. Now, if I'm practiced in prayer, I become more aware of those things. If I'm not practiced in prayer, I become less aware of those things. In fact, if I'm not practicing prayer, I can easily second-guess myself. And my, the second guess is, our Father, well, does He like me? Does He not like me? Is He pleased with me? Am, am, I, am I His prodigal child right now? If you're practicing prayer, you don't think about those things. If you're not practicing prayer, it's very easy for you to go down that, that path. So, the subtitle of this series is Transforming Your Relationship with God. Because the first step toward transformation is communicating with the triune God and digging our roots deep down into Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Deep roots into the triune God are what's important. You may remember that uh, we had a wall of wind that came through our town a while back. And I think Hillcrest Country Club lost over 100 trees and you saw these big trees that came crashing down. Well, here, here's an example of what I saw all, all over the city of Bartlesville. Now, this is not a picture of Bartlesville, but this is a picture of a tree that fell down, 
and the roots did not go very deep. And we saw that all over Bartlesville, where we had these big trees that looked big and stately and majestic. And that wall of wind came down, and that wind toppled the trees and then revealed the roots. And the roots on some of those trees did not go very deep. And because they didn't go very deep, those trees that looked very stable were fundamentally unstable. Well, prayer is the thing that allows your life to dig its roots deep down into the triune God. And so to, to begin the series, I just want to, I want to tell you the story of a guy who, who prayed. He was a prayer warrior. And I, I want to look at Nehemiah who lived in the 5th century B.C. in the land of Judea. It was under Persian rule at the time, and he was the governor of Judea. And in his book, the 16th book of the Bible, we have a leadership memoir. These are the memoirs of his incredible leadership where he leads the people in Jerusalem to rebuild the walls in 52 days. An incredible, miraculous leadership feat. Well, leader, Nehemiah's whole story begins with prayer, and it, it does for good reason. I think what Nehemiah is telling us in his book is that the whole reason why his leadership was affected is that everything about him was bathed in prayer. This guy was a no-nonsense guy, and yet everything about his life was bathed in prayer. So I want to show you uh, four marks of a seasoned prayer warrior, and mark number one is this. People who are practiced in prayer have learned to push back on the busyness of life. Their lives are busy. They know they're busy. They understand that busyness can crowd out prayer, and so they push back on that busyness. We see this in, in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the citadel. Well, right from the very beginning, we see that here's a guy who lives in the capital city of the biggest superpower on earth. So, Nehemiah is living in the equivalent of the Washington, D.C. of his day, the equivalent of the Beijing, the Tokyo of his day, the London, the Paris, etc., etc. He is living in the biggest city of the biggest superpower on planet earth at the time. Now, you might assume that people who are, who are really like into prayer have all sorts of leisure time in their hands. You might assume that they're not in touch with the world. Maybe they don't have schedules to meet. They don't have clients to connect with. They don't have a busy, jam-packed schedule on their iPad, you know, or whatever they used back then. It's possible to visualize prayer warriors as people who've got a lot of leisure time, and they can afford to spend their time in prayer. And that mindset sometimes is, is reinforced by what you see in early church history, where there, there were these monks who, who lived in the deserts, for instance, where they lived in caves, and they prayed, and so they were these prayer warriors who were called the Desert Fathers. And there were these amazing prayer warriors. You get the impression they didn't have a whole lot to do except hang out, hang out in caves. Maybe you see that in the Middle Ages where you see these monks who had these lavish times of silence. But what you find when you look at Nehemiah's life was this guy was incredibly busy. So why was prayer so crucial for him? 
Well, to answer that, we've got to go back 550 years earlier to the year 960 B.C. And that year, King Solomon died. And King Solomon, when he died, was young. He was 60 years old. It's not that old when you think about it from today's vantage point. Um, immediately after Solomon's death, his kingdom was jackhammered in two. The kingdom of the north was called Israel. The kingdom of the south was called Judah. And the next 200 years were extremely chaotic and extremely messy. There was a massive civil war. And uh, the northern kingdom had 19 kings. All of them were bad. The southern kingdom had 20 kings. Eight of them were good. The northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., but the southern kingdom lasted until the Babylonians captured it and it fell in 586 B.C. And what happened for the next, next 70 years? The kingdom of Judah was transported over to Babylon. Not everybody, but a lot of people were. And so there was the thing called the Babylonian captivity. And that Babylonian captivity lasted for about 70 years. And then the unthinkable took place. Cyrus, who is predicted to have come on the scene in Isaiah chapter 45, Cyrus defeats mighty Babylon. And Cyrus had an idea. Cyrus said, what I want to do is I want to take the people that have been deported to Babylon, I want to send them back to their ancestral homes. I want to send Israel back to its ancestral home. It wasn't because he was so benevolent and such a nice guy. He wanted the money from the tax base. If I send people back to Israel, they'll farm the lands, the tax base will increase, and therefore I'll have more money in my capital city called Susa. Well, three waves of people came from Babylon back to Jerusalem, and uh, it was a long trip, a thousand miles. Fifty thousand people went back to Jerusalem. And it was the kind of trip that was up the Fertile Crescent and down to Jerusalem. You see it there on the map, a thousand miles. Big, long, hard trip. The last trek is in 445 B.C., and that's the trek that, that Nehemiah takes. He's the one who goes back leading more people. So here's what's incredible about Nehemiah. In nearly every way, this guy is Persian. He looks Persian. He dresses Persian. He speaks the language that the Persians speak. Uh, his ancestors have been in this area for over 200 years. For all intents and purposes, Nehemiah is a Persian guy. He's Persian for all intents and purposes, culturally right? Well, no, because Nehemiah's worldview is a worldview that is Jewish. He, he adheres to his, to his background. His passion is for a city that he'd never seen, Jerusalem. His passion is for a temple that is small and humble. His passion is for a, a land and so, Nehemiah is entirely steeped in God's Word, and therefore, his life is in Persia. His heart is back in Jerusalem. So, one of the things we see about people who are steeped in prayer is that they are nourished by this very biblical worldview. And prayer warriors have the ability to be anywhere in the world 
and they, they can be in any culture of the world, and yet their heart is with Jesus' mission. Their heart is with their citizenship, which is in heaven. So here you are living in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. The year is 2018. You live in this particular culture. And yet, like Nehemiah, you can have a heart that is completely dominated by a biblical worldview. And therefore, while you live in this culture, your heart is for the citizenship that you have in heaven. That's Nehemiah. And therefore, Nehemiah's entire agenda is for his heavenly passion. Now, look, he lived and worked in Susa. He lived and worked in the Persian Empire. He had job responsibilities that he had to fulfill that were entirely Persian job responsibilities. But deep down, his heart is for the mission that God has him on. And that, that's the situation that you're in as well. Prayer warriors are busy, but their hearts are dominated by a particular vision. We don't have all the picture of Nehemiah quite yet, so I want you to notice something else, else about Nehemiah that could have made him neglect prayer. Uh, verse 11 says that he was, he was the cupbearer to the king. He was the cupbearer to the king. Sounds like a lowly position, but it wasn't. Their job was to taste the king's food, to drink the king's wine, to sleep near the king's chamber, and if they killed over and died from the food or the wine or they were murdered before the guy got to the king's chamber, the king was, was saved. So because he proved his loyalty to the, to the king every day, these cupbearers became the primary advisor to the king. Uh, it was almost like being the chief of staff or uh, a little bit like being the uh, prime minister in, 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 a, in a country. I, I recently read this book by Chris Whipple called The Gatekeepers. Those uh, White House chiefs of staff, and I think it was, um, went back maybe from Eisenhower up, up to the present. A great, a great book, a great book. But that's, that's Nehemiah. He is, uh, he is chief of staff to the most powerful man in the world. So here is a very busy guy with a very busy job, and yet his, he's learning how to push back on the busyness that would dominate his life. Our son Jared um, lives and works in North Africa, and he uh, leads a team that is uh, striving to share the good news to people living in that region and sharing it in Arabic. And when you live in a foreign culture, sometimes you take for granted all the, all the things that are easy to do in the United States. And he's really busy. The last time we were with him, he, he, said, he said, Dad, I, I, I get up at 4.30 to pray. And I have a program uh, called Airtable. And I record all the things that I have to do in my prayer list on Airtable. And I physically drag that list off so that I'm not distracted in prayer. He's doing what Nehemiah did. He's pushing back on the busyness that would crowd out prayer in your life. So the first thing we see about Nehemiah is that he is a busy guy, the equivalent of the chief of staff of the most powerful man in the most powerful country in the world, very busy, and he's pushing back on that busyness, making prayer a priority. That's what prayer warriors do. They reckon that they're busy, and they, they learn how to push back on that busyness. Here's the second thing that seasoned prayer warriors do. 
Seasoned prayer warriors pursue a love relationship with God. They pursue a love relationship with God. And we start to see this in verse 2. Then Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. Now, what he's talking about are the 40,000 people that went the thousand-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem about a hundred years ago before this, and then another group that went under Ezra. So, we're talking about 40-some-odd thousand people, and so he's asking about, how, how are they doing? It's been like a hundred years. How are they doing? And his brother said, uh, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall in Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So, that's not a very good thing. After a hundred years, you'd think more would get done, right? And it hadn't gotten done. And so, what's Nehemiah's response? He says, well, you know, we can, we can handle that here. We can, we can send some administrative people over there. We'll get this job done. We'll, we'll make this happen. Let's do it. No, he didn't do that. What does it say? I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. What? Chief of staff? Sitting down and weeping and mourning for what? Like what? What is, what is going on? Imagine for a second um, that your grandparents. Let's say your great 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 grandparents were from Havana, Cuba. Let's say they 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 migrated from Havana to New York in the year 1818, and now it's 2018, and you consider yourself an eighth generation immigrant from Cuba to the U.S. And then one day some family come from Cuba in the year 2018, and you say to them, how are things going in the old town of Havana, Cuba? And you say, oh, it's, it's bad. It's bad. I mean, look, all these beautiful old houses are broken down. Old town Havana does not look very good. The restoration process is not going well. Now, your, parent, your family hasn't lived there since, since 1918. Now, are you going to weep and mourn for days because Havana is still broken down? Are you going to do that? No, you're not going to do that. So, so why does Nehemiah do it? Nehemiah does that because he understands the, the importance of Jerusalem and God's love for His people and for the nations. In other words, Jerusalem isn't just a city. It's a city from which God is going to do massively Im- important things. And what Nehemiah realized was, hey, the book of Deuteronomy says that if Israel is faithful, God will flourish the country. If Israel is unfaithful, God will scatter His people. And guess what? God has scattered His people. By 445 B.C., the year that Nehemiah leaves, God's people are scattered across the the ancient world. And so, Nehemiah is mourning the fact that God's kingdom program seems to have been stalled out by the unfaithfulness of His people. And so, he's weeping and mourning over over this. What Nehemiah has done is he has conformed his emotions to the emotions of God. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. You know, people with emotional intelligence can adapt their emotions to those that they love. You've seen that, right? I have this vivid memory of my daughter Sarah being four years old. 
We're at a park called Titsi Park in East Dallas, and there is this big dog that runs into the park. Dog wasn't going to hurt anybody. He's a big dog, and Sarah wasn't used to big dogs. And Sarah makes a beeline for me and jumps up into my arms and says, Daddy, I'm scared. Now, what do I do in that moment as a father? I give her a big hug, and I conform my emotions to the emotions of my daughter who's scared. I don't say, don't worry about it. No big deal. I'm saying, hey, are you okay? I love you. It's going to be okay. I'm here. Dog just went away after a while, but I'm conforming my emotions to the emotions of my daughter, giving her a big hug and talking kindly to her. Cindy did the same thing to me when I, I got fired from UPS. Um, uh, we were newly married, um, and uh, this is my first job after I got married. And UPS, if you're pulling boxes, uh, I was just starting out there and, and you know, putting boxes on, on, the, on the trucks. And uh, for 30 days, you could not miss a day. And I was sick as a dog with the flu. Could not, could not get out of bed. Went to work the next day, and they said, sorry, we got we to gotta terminate your employment here. And I called Cindy on the payphone. Remember payphones? Anybody remember payphones? <laughs> I called Cindy on, on, on the payphone. And here she was working at, for an oil company in, in Dallas, and I said, and she was pregnant. And, and uh, sweetheart, I just got fired from my job. <laughs> She handled it brilliantly. She conformed her emotions to my emotions. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He is conforming his emotions to the emotions of God. And what I would say is spiritually intelligent people learn how to conform their emotions to those things which God values. And so, so Nehemiah, Nehemiah is in this love relationship with God in which he is able to do that. When you love somebody, you conform your emotions to the things that matter to them. Nehemiah loves God, and so he conforms his emotions to that which matters to him. That's what prayer warriors do. So, the thing I would, I would ask you as somebody who is growing in prayer is to what extent do you allow your emotions to come out in prayer? To what extent do you allow your emotions to be, to come to the surface when you read His Word or you pray back His Word? To what extent do you allow your emotions to come forward? To what extent is your heart broken by the things which break the heart of God? To what extent is your heart enlivened by the things which God loves? That's an important question to ask because spiritually intelligent people are working on that. They're working on their emotions so that their emotions are conformed to the things which God values. Now we come into the heart of the prayer. What we see is that seasoned prayer warriors follow a prayer plan. Let me start reading this, and I'll show you how the plan develops. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, when you, when you read this, it's, 
possible, if you read it carefully, to discern a very clear plan that Nehemiah is following in this prayer. Now, let me just pause for a moment and say something about plans. I know some people kind of rebel against the idea of having a plan. I don't want a prayer plan. I want to be spontaneous in my prayers. Prayer plans are too confining. Prayer plans make me feel like the prayer is too rote. I will tell you, prayer plans are essential for you to learn how to grow in, in prayer. Paul says in Romans 8.26 that we don't know how to pray. We're weak. We don't know how to pray. And the implication of that is that a prayer plan would help us to learn how to pray. Jesus, when He gives us the Lord's Prayer, gives us a very clear prayer plan. Remember, the Lord's Prayer um, is a very simple prayer. We have two affirmations about God. We have three requests for God, and we have four requests for ourselves. Two, three, four. That's the idea. It's like the Lord's Prayer is the ABCs of prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer you could pray in maybe 30 seconds, as is. Or you could expand on each line and pray it in 30 minutes. Or you could really expand on each line and pray it in three hours. It's designed to be a basic model prayer, a springboard prayer, a prayer plan. Jesus gave us a prayer plan in the Lord's Prayer. Great place to start. So, when you see other prayers in the Scriptures and you realize, oh, they're following a plan, that's the biblical model, is that prayer should follow a well-developed plan. So, here's how Nehemiah's prayer develops. First element is praise. O Lord God of heaven. Now, you notice that I put the plural heavens in there because it is plural in the Hebrew. And by the way, when Jesus says, our Father who is in heaven, that's plural as well. Literally, it's our Father who art in the heavens. Like, what's going on there? What's happening there? Well, this is praise, but it's praise for the nearness of God. You see, when the Bible uses this idea of heavens, plural, it's the idea that there are heavenly spaces around us. I talk about that a lot at Grace. It's not like God is way up there past, you know, Jupiter, sitting on Saturn, somewhere past maybe the Andromeda galaxy or way out there in deep space in a super galaxy cluster. That, you know, our Father who is in heaven, it's like, okay, where? Like beyond the Andromeda galaxy? No. What this means is our Father who is very near in the spiritual space that surrounds us. That's what that means. Our Father who is in the heavenly spaces that surrounds us, our Father who is very near, our Father who is immediately present right here, our Father in whose presence I live and move and have my being. That's the idea. So, when Nehemiah is praising the God of the heavens, what he's saying is, God, you are immediately present in the space around me. Yes, you're way out there because basically God occupies every point in space. But He's very near. And so, this, this praise is a praise for the nearness of God. The Lord's Prayer is the same way. Our Father who is in the heavens and the space immediately around me, hallowed be Your name. When you praise God, 
a great way to start is to say, God, I praise you that you are immediately present, like present in the space around me. You're near to me right here, right now. I can fellowship with you in this space. I thank you for that. I praise you for that. You are immediately present. That's a great way to begin to pray. That's how Nehemiah prays. That's how Jesus instructed us to pray. And then, um, and then we see a second element of prayer is confession. He says, uh, day and night, confessing sins. Well, let's see how he did it. Day and night, I am praying for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the guy who's praying this. He looks Persian. He speaks the Persian language. He is in the Persian capital. He's dressed like a Persian, and he is in constant contact with the Persian king. But he's identifying with the people of God. And notice how in his confession, how he confesses not only, not only the sins of his people, but his own, his own personal sins. So what's confession? Confession is simply you agreeing with God about your sin. Confession is simply you saying the same thing that God says about your shortcomings. So when you say, uh, Father, I confess that I did this today, you are agreeing with God that this thing that you may, may have done that day is sin. You're agreeing that it's wrong. And what Nehemiah does is Nehemiah functions like a true leader, like a true believer priest. He, he confesses the sins of his nation in verse 6. He confesses the sins of his father's tribe in verse 6. He confesses his personal sins in verse 7. Okay? What he did back then, we're commanded to do today because 1 Peter 2.9 talks about us being believer priests. I can confess my sins. I can confess the sins of my family. I can confess the sins of my children. As a believer priest, I can confess those sins. I can admit that whatever that thing was was wrong. I can, I can confess that. And as a believer priest, I can confess on behalf of somebody else in whom I have a relationship. Why do we have the authority to do that? Because I'm a believer priest. And as a believer priest, I can intercede for somebody else before, before God. That's what spiritual leaders do. So, um, then we see something else that he does, a third element of his prayer plan, is that he focuses in, zeroes in on, on the promises. Nehemiah approaches God on the basis of his promises. See this in verse 8. Lord, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, what he's going to do is he's going to quote Deuteronomy chapter 29. Moses is winding up his series of sermons, which is the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 29, he gives a promise. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Where is Israel right now when Nehemiah writes this in 445 B.C.? They're scattered among the nations. So if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. God fulfilled that promise. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you're outcasts, Oh, what a hard word that is. Just read that and you think, 
people were feeling a little bit like that. We've been cast out of God's land that He promised. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them back to the place that I have chosen. So Nehemiah is approaching God on the basis of, of, his, of his promises. Uh, that's what prayer warriors do. How many promises do we have in the Scriptures, in, in the whole Bible? How many promises do you have as a believer? I read one resource this week that said uh, about 3,500. There are 3,500 promises in the Bible that you can claim to be your own. So one of the things that God loves is when we go back to His Word and says, God, do you remember when you said this about anxiety, be anxious for nothing, and then, and, and then the, the peace of God would come that surpasses comprehension? Remember that, Lord? Remember, that, remember you said that? All right, I'm anxious, and I need the peace of God right now. I'm going to stand on that promise. God loves it. When you come to Him in your need and you stand on the promises that are there in the Scriptures. And then we see another, thing, another element of, of His prayer, and that is we have this element of position. Nehemiah 1.10, they're your servants, your, your people. Lord, they are the servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power. You know, here's the cool thing about, about that. God's people were redeemed at the Exodus with the Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the doorposts, applied to the lentils, and, uh, and then the angel of death passed over. Their redemption, the, uh, the nation as a whole, took place at the event of the Passover. Where does your redemption take place? The ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, His rising from the dead. You're redeemed based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so what good prayer warriors do is they zero in on their position in Christ. So think about your position in Christ. Um, you are, there's many aspects of your position, but it, there are at least five. You are united with Jesus in His death. You're united with Him in His burial. You're united with Him in His resurrection, with Him in His ascension, and you're seated at the right hand of the Father. Your position as a believer in Jesus Christ today is that you are seated on Jesus' throne. Like, how do you wrap your arms around that? That, that is an incredibly exalted position. And people who are growing in prayer seize upon the spiritual reality of that position, and they live according to that position, whether they feel it or not whether they emotionally connect with it or not, whether they personally encounter it as, a, as an existential thing or not. They seize upon that position, and that position becomes a really important thing as they develop their life. And then we see another element. The other element is asking. He says, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name. Notice how he says the word servants. I, I wonder if he's included now his brothers who have come back from Jerusalem and give me success and grant, grant mercy. So, what, what do we see in terms of, of his plan? We've got praise, confession, 
promises, position, and asking. A very, very simple prayer plan that Nehemiah uses. He's a busy guy. He depends upon a plan, and he's praying according to that plan, and he's asking God to give him success. Well, now we've got to go to the rest of the story, because the other thing about prayer warriors is they're willing to take action, and sometimes they're willing to be the answer to the prayers that they pray. Let me just briefly give you the rest of the story from chapter 2. Here, Nehemiah has been weeping and mourning for days, and there was a law among the Persians that you couldn't do that in the presence of the king. The kings only wanted happy servants. They only wanted happy leaders. It was like the ultimate positivity place, you know, and if you were unhappy in the king's presence, that was regarded as being an offense to the king. Here, the king was this great man, and if you were upset in the king's presence, you were somehow taking away and robbing from some of the king's dignity and glory. He did not want anybody sad in his presence. So, Nehemiah is trying his best to control his emotions, but it's not happening. And one day the king notices and says, Nehemiah, my friend, my chief of staff, what's wrong? Your face is so sad, but I know you're not sick. What's up? In that moment, Nehemiah is likely seized with fear because you could be fired or your head could be lopped off. So, um, Nehemiah um, prays a quick prayer and explains the situation in his homeland. And incredibly, the king says, okay, what can I do for you? Now, think about that opportunity. Okay, what can I do for you? The most powerful man in the world has just said, okay, what can I do for you? Now, don't you think that if you were in, if you were prayed up about this, that you would have a plan brewing in your head? Nehemiah had a plan brewing in his head. And let me give you the, uh, let me give you the, the elements of the plan. He says this, okay, okay, king. I want letters of passage in every city all along the Fertile Crescent, like that thousand-mile place. I want letters of passage in every city that I go to. King says, okay, got it, got it. Second, I want a letter of credit to construct the walls once I arrive. Oh, you want some money. Okay, you got it. Third, he says, I want a letter of credit so that I can build a house to stay in. Ooh, you, you want some like your own personal house. Yes, I need, I need a place to stay once I get there. I'm not going to have any place to stay. Remember, it's, it's pretty broken down there. And fourth, check this out. Fourth, I want you to send SEAL Team 6 to go with me so that I can have armed protection. You think, that's ridiculous. There's no SEAL Team 6 there. But you'll notice in chapter 2, that he has the king's soldiers with him. So the king is sending soldiers with Nehemiah to enforce the four previous things that he asked for. This guy has asked an outrageous amount of things of the king. This is like a like ridiculous amount of things. And yet, the king says, okay, you got him. Nehemiah made the ask. But Nehemiah is willing to take action on the basis 
of His prayers. That's the cool thing about prayer warriors. You know, there's a time to wait on the Lord. There's a time to do nothing. There's a time to just to be in the Lord's presence and wait on Him to act. But there's an, also a time where you say, okay, I may be the answer to this prayer. God may be calling me to take action on this prayer. Lord, what do I need to do? Lord, help me with a plan. And I want to be ready when somebody asks me how they can help. So let's step back and let's think about what we learned from this. Prayer warriors are typically busy, just like you, and they're learning to push back on the busyness. Prayer warriors are intent on pursuing a love relationship with God. Prayer warriors, because they're busy, they often pursue a plan. What I find interesting is that if you look at, at the Psalms, all the Psalms that include prayer, those Psalms usually follow some sort of a plan. I don't want to get overly technical, but there is a, a psalm called an individual lament psalm. Those follow the same plan. There's about 50 of those psalms in the Bible. They follow the same sort of a plan. So prayer warriors follow a plan. And prayer warriors are often willing to be part of the plan as God leads. So I have one takeaway for you, for you today. In your update, you've got a prayer card. And uh, in these prayer cards, we've got just a very simple plan for the, for the next six days. I would just encourage you to pull that prayer card out, put it in your Bible, put it in your wallet, maybe put it in your purse, wh whatever you take with you, and pray through that plan over the six days. Yeah, it'd be great if our entire church family were kind of praying over some of these, some of these same things. I'm grateful to Mike Sorensen for the great work that he that he, he did on that. Get used to, to using a plan. And we'll have a, a new prayer card for you next week, another one for the week after, another one for the week after. So we'll be able to pray alongside of, of a plan. What I'd like for us to do now is stand for our, our closing prayer. While you're standing, I want to uh, just remind you about tonight, uh, 5.30. And if you would like to... Uh, to volunteer and help us pull some pork, you can get here early. Four, four, four thirty would would be would be great. And uh, let's pray, Father God. We just want to say thank you, thank you that you are the great and mighty God, who um, is omnipresent. You occupy every point of space, including the space that's around us, and you fellowship with us in that space. You are the God of heaven, and we love you that we can be near to you and enjoy your spiritual presence. Lord, as we go through this series, I pray that you would transform us as a congregation and transform us individually as we learn how to pray. In Jesus' name, amen.